On today's episode, I answer the questions, what is causing my dog's bladder stones? Can I give my dog Benadryl to treat her anxiety? I discuss what is the best treatment for hormonal urinary incontinence in dogs? Are these lumps mammary cancer is another? And then finally, should I take my gagging cat to the vet? But first, let's cue the music. You're listening to the Dr. Alex Answers Podcast, the show that answers all of your dog and cat health questions so they can live healthier, happier lives. And here's your host, veterinarian, Dr. Alex Avery. Hi, and welcome to episode three of the Dr. Alex Answers Show. I'm Dr. Alex, the veterinarian behind ourpetshealth.com, and this is the show where I answer any question you have about how to prevent disease, how to keep your pet healthy, pick up on the fact that they might be unwell, and the things you need to think about when it comes to treating them for whatever life throws their way. I'm so grateful that you're here sharing your valuable time with me. And if you haven't already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast. I've got loads more valuable episodes lined up that you just won't want to miss, and your pet will definitely thank you for subscribing. Now, you can also get your question answered simply by heading over to dralexanswers.com. Right, so my first question today is what is the cause of bladder stones in a dog? So this wee dog, they had a bladder full of stones removed, they were put on a specific diet, they changed to spring water, but the same problem recurred, you know, very quickly a year later. Um, And the vet said that they'd never seen a recurrence so fast and the dog needed a second emergency surgery. Um, And the question really is, you know, what is the cause of this? So we need to break this down. So there are four main types of bladder stones and each of those has a different cause. So without knowing which stone it is, it's very difficult or impossible to, to give an exact cause. And actually this dog's stones uh, have been sent off for analysis. They do take some time to come back, um, you know, depending on where you are in the world. It can take um, a few months in some cases, but that really is the first thing that we need to do. Now, the most common stone is something called struvite, and that's generally due to an underlying bacterial infection that changes the urine's pH, so the acidity, and making it become an alkaline. It can also be caused by some drugs or diets, and it can also form when there's a very concentrated urine as well, because what can happen is we can get a high salt urine content but when it's very concentrated these salts all precipitate out and they form like a sludge or a sand and that can then form bigger larger stones. Now apart from struvite our next most common is something called calcium oxalate Um, and actually these are increasing increasing in frequency so as we're better able to manage and better able to prevent struvite stones in the first place we're seeing less of those in an increased percentage incidence of calcium oxalate stones and actually the cause of these is poorly understood. They form an acidic urine so unlike struvite which are alkaline they form an acidic urine and they seem to form in pets that are being fed diets high in calcium and oxalates and citrates and they can also be seen when there's a prolonged antibiotic use um, as well and that can alter the the normal gut flora so the normal bacteria um, that are present inside the intestines that then interferes with the general and normal absorption of these salts. So that's the first and most common two stones. And next, the next two, we've got something called cysteine and then finally urate. And these are both generally felt to be a result of genetics. Um, So an example of this is male Dalmatians, which are the classic breed to suffer from urate bladder stones, although females and other breeds are also predisposed. So once we then Once we know what the stone is, we can then look to identify the underlying cause. So if we take struvite for an example, we know that's normally caused by an infection, but why are we getting this infection? So 
Is their animal diabetic, for example? Are they suffering from a urinary incontinence, which can make cystitis more common? So, yeah, we need to look and see if we can identify that underlying cause, which will then help us to, to be able to prevent it. Now, very often we can't actually find an underlying cause and we need to do a few other things. And, and dietary management is definitely something that we need to consider. And that's regardless of stone type. There are different diets that have been shown and proven to reduce the incidence of each stone type. So depending on what type the stones are found to be depends on what the dietary advice will be. There are things that we can just add to normal diets for example as well that may be able to change the pH although that may be a little bit more hit and miss. Um, and then the final big one and general um, recommendation would always be to try and increase the water intake. So a lot of these diets will will do that anyway. They'll increase the, the water intake They'll um, and, and that acts to reduce the concentration of the urine, which helps just flush out the bladder more frequently. So if you can imagine you've got a lot of salts in the urine, if they're very dilute, they're not going to precipitate out um, and form that sludge in the first instance. But if they do, then just producing a lot of really dilute urine will mean that your pet's going to need to go to the toilets a lot more and they're just going to flush out all of this kind of sand and grit before it develops into big stones. So that's you know really important when it comes to prevention. So I hope that answers that question. Right, before we jump into the next question, I just wanted to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by the rpetshealth.com guide to pain in cats. Don't let your cats suffer in silence. They hide their pain so well, but don't they deserve to be pain-free? Well, find out how to recognise the signs of pain in cats, as well as how you can go about ensuring their ongoing comfort. Simply download your free guide at rpetshealth.com resources, where there are also lots of other free downloads as well. You're listening to the Dr. Alex Answers Show. Okay, so let's move on to question number two, and that is, is Benadryl safe for anxiety? Okay, so Benadryl contains the anti antihistamine diphenhydramine and generally speaking Benadryl is safe but there are conditions where it might be dangerous to give this medication to your dog and that includes dogs with glaucoma, with some urinary problems, um, some causes of vomiting, heart disease and high blood pressure and also hypothyroidism which is very uncommon in dogs but if it's present then nonetheless you know we need to be careful with Benadryl. So whenever we're giving anything to our dogs or our cats you really need to be talking to your vet because they will be able to give you specific advice for your pet any information that you read online or i'm giving in these um in these podcasts is going to be just general advice for you know the majority of the population but it's never going to be individual advice for a specific patient for the first reason, I'm not allowed to do that. It would be unethical. Um, there's a high, incident, a high probability of giving wrong advice, or it may be that your dog is, you know, the, the exception to the rule and, and something which most others would be fine with, you know, your dog would really have problems with. So definitely speak to your vet. But, you know, those conditions where Benadryl isn't safe are reasonably uncommon. So, if we think of Benadryl or diphenhydramine as a whole, that can be given and it's often given more to treat allergic disease. Um, and that's, yeah, like I say, the most common reason probably that this is given to dogs, although the individual response does vary. And when it comes to antihistamines, it seems that dogs do have a very individual response. They um, will respond to one and not another. Um, and that you may need to cycle through several different um, types of antihistamine before finding one that works for your dog. Now, one of the potential side effects of Benadryl is sedation, and it's primarily this sedative effect which people rely on um, when it comes to treating anxiety. Although the drug does have some kind of anti-anxiety effect as well that's separate from the sedation. Um, 
So the other thing to think about is if we're using it on a regular basis, then actually the sedative effect generally wears off. Um, and also some dogs may be unaffected anyway, like I just discussed. So, you know, it, while, while it can be used for some cases of anxiety, it might not be beneficial if you're using it regularly or if your dog is one of these that doesn't respond. Um, so yeah, while Benadryl can be used to treat anxiety, it's probably best suited really to, to mild anxiety um, and really only used with kind of in conjunction with other management techniques. Um, and I, for example, I've discussed those in my article over on rpetshealth.com all about helping a dog cope with fireworks um, or the our Pets Health podcast um, episode number 107 goes through that as well. So um, yeah, if you've not subscribed to the Our Pets Health podcast, then make sure you're subscribed to that one as well and check out that article. So whenever we're treating anxiety or behavioral problems, there's a whole wealth of things that we can do. And if we can do a lot of different things, then it's going to have a much better effect than just trying to find that one kind of magic bullet, that one magic treatment, because very often there's no such thing. We need to do a lot of other things. So um, you know, like I say, it may be that we need to do other things and there may be some other products that are more suitable for your dog, you know, depending on the nature of their anxiety or any other medical issues that they're suffering with. And that might be something like an adaptil collar um, or plug-in diffuser, and that's pheromone treatment. It could be a dietary supplement like Carmex or Zalkine, um, or it could be another pharmaceutical product. So that goes back to discussing with your vet what's the best thing for your dog um, or your cat if they're suffering from anxiety or stress, and what's the most effective management strategy. So we don't want to think about treating a condition with, a, a, especially of one like anxiety um, or phobias or fears with a drug, that's not a management plan. That's one part of a strategy, um, but we need to do lots of other things and definitely chat with your vet um, or a behaviorist as well when it comes to developing other strategies um, to help, although your vet will be the number one port of call for pharmaceutical intervention. Okay, so this answer ties in quite nicely to the fact that the information that I give in these podcasts is not a substitute for a consultation and an examination with your pet's veterinarian, and it should not be taken as specific advice for any individual pet. If your pet is unwell, injured, or suffering from any kind of problem, then talking to your vet is always the best course of action. Right, so let's move on to question number three, and that's all about hormonal incontinence in a female dog. And this question is about the different types of medication that we use. And generally speaking, there are two different types. Um, which is the best one? How, to, how do we decide which is the best one for your dog and which one do I recommend? Well, we've got a couple of different medications. One's called um, propylene and one is an estrogen kind of supplement. Now, both these medications work well and are generally considered safe to give. Although, as with all medications, there is the potential for side effects. Um, but in my experience, these are really very rare. So um, propylene can cause restlessness, it can cause aggression, irritability, and even high blood pressure. And then estrogen treatment has the potential to be toxic to the bone marrow. Now, as for which one I recommend, I tend to recommend propylene. Um, it's my personal preference. It's very much a personal preference. Um, and the reason I recommend that to start with is for a couple of reasons. So although the side effects of either of these are very, very rare, I feel that bone marrow problems are probably more severe um, and they have a, a greater potential to even be life-threatening. Although, like I say, if your dog is on an estrogen supplement for this, the chances of that is very uncommon. And, you know, ideally we'd be monitoring for that as well with blood tests. Um, but the other benefit for propylene is that it comes in a liquid, liquid formulation rather than a tablet. And that means that the dose can more easily be tapered 
to the lowest effective dose and that's frequently a lot lower than the starting dose tends to be so you know that's my reasons for choosing propylene but it may be that in your dog that a different one the the estrogen treatment is more appropriate or you'll find it easier to administer so really kind of in reality it probably makes very little difference which you choose if they're both suitable for your dog, given their other kind of medical uh, medical history and any other concerns that they're suffering with. And then if one fails to work as expected, I would have no concerns about switching to the other drug in the majority of dogs. Okay, so question number four is all about a couple of different lumps that are on a dog's belly that maybe look like, you know, mammary glands or where the mammary glands should be. And they're wondering if these are mammary cancers. Now, um, you obviously can't see the picture, but regardless of any lump in any picture, it's impossible to know what any lump is from a picture alone. Um, you know, these ones, they don't look like typical mammary tumours, but they definitely potentially could be. You know, we rely when we're examining our pets on a lot of different things. So um, when it comes to masses, we rely on, on texture, on feel, on kind of palpating whether they're um, feeling, whether they're extending into adjacent tissues. But you know, no matter how accurate your fingers are, no matter how sensitive your fingers are, we can't tell what a mass is just by feel and just by look. We might have a suspicious, a suspicion, sorry, a higher suspicion that it's more likely to be a certain lump, but we can never say with any degree of absolute certainty. Certainty. So really with any new lumps that develop, the best thing to do is, is firstly to get them checked out by your vet. And then depending on what they think, consider having something called a fine needle aspirate cytology carried out. So what this effectively is, is um, a needle, and this can be done conscious in unsedated animals. It's pain-free and it's a great technique from that point of view. Um, it involves taking a little needle, um, kind of stabbing it into the lump and moving it around a little bit and then squirting the contents that is um, then within the needle out onto a slide and examining that under the microscope. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't always give a, a complete diagnosis um, and you need to then move to a biopsy or an excision, so removing the lump and sending that off. But that's obviously more invasive. It requires um, heavy sedation or anesthesia and surgery. Um, and so a fine needle aspirate in the majority of lumps is a great first step. Now, when it comes to mammary masses, though, unfortunately, an FNA or a fine needle aspirate is generally not really super useful because the mass population can be very mixed when it comes to mammary tumours uh, and it can be very hard to interpret with any degree of accuracy. So it might be that you get one type of cell um, on the FNA sample, but it may very well be because there's a mixed um, mixed specimen, we're not getting uh, a representative sample. Now, if we're thinking about mammary tumours again, then about 50% of those are malignant, meaning that they're nasty tumours, that they have the potential to spread to other parts of the body, and 50% are benign. You know, having said that, you know, we think of benign as something that we don't need to worry about. Well, benign mammary tumours definitely can cause problems. They might not spread to other parts of the body, but they can get really big, they can become ulcerated, they can be painful, and they can definitely... Um, be detrimental to a dog's quality of life and can ultimately be a reason for euthanasia if they've got to a stage that they're getting so big and ulcerated and causing so many problems. So really removal in the early stages is the best option for a successful outcome when it comes to any type of mammary tumour. Now it might be that these ones aren't mammary tumours so we don't need to worry but that's something to think about whenever you feel any masses but any masses especially kind of along the, the ventrum so the bottom the belly of your dog. Ask your question at dralexanswers.com. Okay, so my final question is, my cat's been gagging for two and a half days, um, not herself. Do I need to go to the vet or can I wait for them to cough up whatever's going on? Well, 
let's start by saying gagging is not a normal thing for a cat to do. And it could definitely represent a problem with maybe the back of the, the mouth, the throat or the upper intestinal tract. So um, the kind of the upper esophagus and that kind of thing. And that could be due to a foreign body. So something that has been kind of swallowed or stabbed in the back of the mouth. Um, it could be a bit of stick, a grass seed, you know, whatever, something like that. Um, it could be an ulceration. It could be an injury. It could be severe dental disease. It could be nerve problems. You know, there's lots of things that can be going on. Um, and it's not normal. So the problem is also clearly affecting this cat. And so it's definitely better to get um, her checked out and checked over sooner rather than later. Um, as problems in this area, they can become much harder to treat if left for some time. Um, and they can you know, cause real problems that can be you know, potentially life-threatening as well. Um, you know, and quite aside from the fact that the cat's clearly unwell you know, and it's potentially in pain. So we don't want to leave our pets in pain, do we? Don't take the fact that the cat's still eating, so I didn't mention that, but this cat is still eating, as a sign that it's only a minor problem or a sign that there's no pain. Because while it may well be minor, um, in this case, you know, cats will often continue to eat despite being in extreme pain or disease. So something I often say to my clients is that a cat doesn't know that if they stop eating, their owner's going to take them to the vets and get their problem sorted out. They simply know that they need to eat to survive. So, you know, just think then how bad or how painful the disease has to be before they feel like they can't eat anymore and they stop eating. So we don't want to leave it to get to that point. And that goes for any disease, really. If we're getting onto it sooner rather than later, then there's a better chance that the treatment is going to be more simple. It's going to be less involved. It's going to be therefore cheaper, which is something that we all want. Um, but also your, your pet's not going to be in pain or they're not going to be feeling unwell for a prolonged period of time. You know, there's nothing more frustrating than having pets brought to me who have been suffering for a long, long time. And then they're really past the point of no return or a lot of money needs to be spent where the prognosis is only maybe guarded. And so the owner elects for euthanasia rather than treatment. Whereas if they brought them to the vet sooner, you know, it might have been a simple course of tablets that would have fixed them. So, you know, definitely think about that. We don't want to sit on these things that are causing our pets pain or that are causing our pets to feel unwell and they're clearly not happy. You know, we want to be getting them checked out. And that's definitely my advice in this case as well. Okay, so that's it for this episode of the podcast. Be sure to subscribe. And if you have a spare couple of minutes, I'd love it if you could leave me a review over on iTunes or over at ourpetshealth.com slash review. That will just help more people discover this podcast and allow me to help more pets. So reviews help more than you could imagine. And I'd appreciate it so much if you could take the time to do that. In the same kind of vein, share this with your friends and family as well. And I'll see you next time. Take care. You've been listening to the Dr. Alex Answers Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and we'll see you on the next episode of the show where you ask the questions and Dr. Alex answers.